Good morning, Lakewood. For those of you who may not know who I am, my name is Ben Hansen, and I have been given the honor and privilege of digging into God's Word with all of you today. Uh, I have been here at Lakewood, running around the halls since I was uh, a little kid. Uh, grew up attending uh, the Sunday schools and the Wednesday night programming uh, and everything that Lakewood had to offer. Uh, I even had the opportunity before I went off to school to intern with the youth group here at Lakewood. Uh, and then a couple times since then, and one time during then, uh, I've been given the opportunity to preach. And I recognize the responsibility that Lakewood has entrusted me with in that. And I thank you uh, for your trust uh, in letting me do this. It's very encouraging. Also, I was actually standing in just about this very spot uh, not so long ago, just earlier this week on Wednesday, for the Brainerd Area Youth for Christ Bay Rally that Lakewood was so kind as to host and help us put on here. As we were informing the students of the Brainerd Lakes area about seeing themselves as God sees them and not as the world sees them. And I bring that up as a testament to the faithfulness of Lakewood. Not only in their partnership with the ministry that I currently work for, Brainerd Area Youth for Christ, but also with me in my own personal spiritual development and growth to where I am now. So thank you for that. To start this morning, I have a question for you all. And here it is. How sure are you this morning? How sure are you this morning? To which some of you might ask and say, well, Ben, sure about what? To which I would say, yes. And you would protest again and you'd say, no, Ben, what, what is it that we are sure or not sure about? Like, what is it? could be anything. And I could say, yes. What are you sure about this morning? What do you feel? How sure do you feel this morning? I don't know about you guys, but lately, with so many of the things that have been going on in the world, in our nation, in our state, things can feel or have been feeling less and less sure, less and less certain. Things that we thought for sure were going to happen, plans that we had made have had to change. Things feel less and less sure. For the passage today, I'm going to be preaching out of 1 John chapter 4, verses 7 through 21. And I just need to acknowledge that I'm going to be picking off where others uh, have left off. Just last week, you were in the capable preaching hands of Jordan Erickson, and a couple weeks before that, Herb Bloomquist did an amazing job going through this book of 1 John. But to catch some of you up, a little recap for some of you and for others, if this is your first time either watching or attending and you don't know exactly what's going on here, I'll get you caught up to speed quick. This book, 1 John, is written by, surprise, surprise, John, the apostle, disciple of Jesus, often called the one whom Jesus loved, or John the Elder. Now, this isn't the only book that John had written in the Bible. There are actually three letters from John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, of which this is the first, and perhaps his most famous and well-known book, The Gospel of John. Now, this letter of John, this epistle of John, feels and reads pretty differently in, ter in terms of content than the Gospel of John. 
Because the Gospel of John is very evangelistic in nature. And in fact, many of you, when you first came to Christ, you may have been advised, read John, read the book of John, because it is so theologically rich and lays the foundation of the Christian faith so well for new believers. Meanwhile, 1 John is written to those who are already believers. Uh, In terms of the history of it, probably written to maybe the church of Ephesus and the churches around it in Asia Minor. Uh, Those who are already Christians. And just a note about John's writing style. Uh, He writes in a very non-linear way. It's like, contrast this with Paul, who's just a very logical, well-structured guy, and you can just see like his outline. He's like, A, then B, then C, C1, C2, C3, D, E, F, and he just goes down his list and structures things like that. John, on the other hand, writes in circles, and he goes back and he emphasizes, and it's almost like poetry as he's going through and delivering to his readers what he has to say and God has inspired him to say. And some people, that drives them nuts because we like those linear ways. Or some people prefer the cyclical ways, like John writes. But either way, what John has to say to us in this passage is indeed inspired and God-breathed and useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. So, game plan. I'm going to read through the entire passage, and then we're going to go back. I'll say a quick prayer, and then we'll dig into it. Sound good? 1 John chapter 4, starting in verse 7. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world, that we might live through him. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. We know that we live in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit. And we have seen and testify that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in him and he in God. And so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in him. In this way, love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment because in this world, we are like him. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, they are a liar. 
For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, who they have not seen. And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. Father, as we are about to dig into this word, I pray that you will give us eyes to see, ears to hear, minds to understand, and hearts to absorb and turn and believe what it is that you have to say to us in your word this morning. Illumine the scriptures and what you have to say to us, to us, God, and may we understand and go and be changed by it. Amen. So, starting from the top, verse 7. Dear friends, he starts out. John cares deeply about those he's writing to. This isn't some kind of impassive, cold letter from some academic instructor to his distant students. This isn't uh, a distanced and cold person. This is John the Elder who loves the people he is writing to. Dear friends or beloved, your Bible may say. He moves on, let us love one another. At which point we have to stop and make sure that we're all on the same page with this. Because let us love one another, we have to ask, what is love? And to those of you who in your minds you have going through, baby, don't hurt me, don't hurt me no more, that is not the answer to this question. Rather, the type of love that John is talking about here is agape love. And quick Greek crash course or refresher for some of you. Uh, In the English language, we've got one use for love that we use all over the place, and we have to figure out exactly what it means based on how we use it, where it's like, I love ice cream. I love my friend. I love my wife or my husband, so on and so forth. However, in Greek, they have a variety of words for love that they, they can use and specifically implies different meanings. In this case, we're talking about agape love. And as for what it means, it seems to be fairly well described back in 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It is not rude. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. This is agape love. And he also says that this love we're supposed to have or do for one another. And the one another here is the recipients of the letter that John is writing. It is fellow believers. Believers are to love their brothers and sisters in Christ. And he gives the reason right after that. Because for love comes from God. Why are we to love one another? Because that love, agape love, comes from God. God is its source. Further, everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. And so then we'd have to ask, okay, being born of God, what does this mean? Is this being born in some kind of general physical sense that we're all born into the world and the love that we have within us is an admittedly broken but still a reflection of the love that uh, God has that we express to each other? Or is John talking about a different kind of love? 
or a more different kind of birth, a spiritual rebirth talked about perhaps in the first gospel, the first book that he wrote in John chapter 3 in Jesus' famous conversation with the teacher Nicodemus in which Jesus describes a spiritual rebirth necessary in order for anyone to see the kingdom of heaven. Given the agape type of love that John is talking about in this passage, it seems that he is also talking about this spiritual rebirth, this spiritual transformation that takes place upon our conversion. And this new spiritual birth has other implications too such as the family that we are now born into, God's family. Just uh, the last chapter, 1 John 3, 2, John says we are children of God. And therefore, we receive the recognizable family trait of agape love. So when we love, it is a symptom, it's a, a, a evidence, it is a result of having been born again in this spiritual way. But not only are we born of God, it also says we know God. And this is more than simply an acquaintance. Uh, the word here, to know, implies more than that. It's more intimate. It's more sure. All of this, to the extent that this knowledge of God, it does more than just inform us about him, it transforms us. We see the evidence of this in the next verse, verse 8. Whoever does not love does not know God, because God is love. And so this is a pretty broad, sweeping statement, kind of heavy, but it does ring true. If this knowledge of God is truly deep and intimate and transformative, then those who truly know him, the epitome, the source, the embodiment of love, will, therefore, love like him. And some of you might now be thinking back to the last unloving or less than loving thing that you did. You might think, oh no, last night uh, we were having pie and I cut up the pie and I chose the largest piece of pie for myself and that wasn't loving and therefore maybe I don't know God. Ah. To which we would do well to remind ourselves of what John wrote in the beginning of chapter 2. The reassurance that is, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Not only for ours, but the sins of the whole world. We have that reassurance. Verse 9. This is how God showed his love among us. He sent his one and only Son into the world that we might live through him. John starts off, this is how God showed his love. It's not a claim of exclusivity. He isn't saying this is the only way that God shows us his love or has shown us his love. His mercies are new every day. We even think about the wonderful fall weather that we've been having recently, the beautiful changing color of the leaves. And even that is the fingerprints and evidence of a creator who loves his creation. So, it's not exclusivity. Instead, it's emphasis. He's setting the stage. He's about to sh tell the greatest example of God showing us his love that he can think of. He says it in the next verse, or the next part of this verse. He sent his one and only son into the world that we might live through him. There it is. 
God sent his one and only son, just in case it wasn't enough that it was his child, it's his only child, that we might live through him. It was for the sake of others, outward-oriented, agape, sacrificial love. And he drives his point home even further in the next verse, verse 10. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. You want to know what love is? This is it, says John. It is not, 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 that we loved God. All of us were haters of God, lovers of darkness, rejecting his lordship, sinners who had missed the mark. Love does not start with us. Instead, love is that God loved us first, sending his son to die as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. So here was us. We had messed up. We were hopelessly lost. We were fools. We wanted nothing to do with the infinite creator God, rejecting him in favor of our own squalor and filth and our mad scramble to place ourselves on the thrones of our lives and the lives of those around us. And instead of doing what he had every right to do and scooshing us under his cosmic creator thumb, giving us the penalty of death that we deserved, he became flesh and died in our place so that we might be restored to a right relationship with him. So please hear me, hear what John is saying, hear what Paul emphasizes as he declares the same thing in Romans 5, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. There is no greater picture of love. There's no analogy that I can make, no story or metaphor or illustration. Any act of love that you or I can imagine or come up with or do is at best a reflection of this God's love demonstrated in this one incredible act. God is love, and this is love. Verse 11. Dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Again, dear friends, beloved, as we and his readers are staring into this massive and awesome demonstration of God's love that John just pointed out to us, almost like one might look at the sun kind of shielding our eyes, John gently guides us back towards the implication and application of that reality. Since God so loved us, we have no excuse not to be loving one another. Verse 12, no one has ever seen God, but if we love one another, God lives in us and his love is made complete in us. So no one has ever seen God. This statement almost seems like it kind of came out of left field at first. You read it and wonder, what does that have to do uh, with anything, the ability of us to see God. And he explains it a little bit right now, and he'll actually explain it a little bit more later as well. But immediately he explains it this way, with a contrast. But, however, 
despite the fact that no one has ever seen God, if we love one another, God lives in us, or he abides in us, and his love is made complete in us. So even if we can't see God with our own eyes, we can see him living in each other and ourselves as we love each other. This idea of God's love being made complete or perfected also isn't saying that God's love was incomplete or imperfect when it was outside of us. Not at all. Instead, the implication is that in ourselves there is a replacement of an imperfect, flawed semblance of love that we maintained even in our fallen state but was broken. We were still image bearers. But then that broken love is taken and made complete by love himself as the source of love himself abides within us. And this idea, this concept of seeing God's love in others and the manifestation of it, you may have experienced that as you think of marriages uh, that have lasted many years. As you think of uh, the sacrifice of energy and time and money by those who care for those who need it, such as the poor and the widows. The refusal to give up on a wayward son or daughter. A pastor selflessly guiding his flock through troublesome times. When we see those things, we are seeing God living in them and his love being made perfect in them. And it is a wonderful and encouraging thing to see that. Verse 13, this is how we know that we live in him and he in us. He has given us of his spirit. John says this is how we know. This is how we know we live in him. This is assurance. To see this love manifest in ourselves and others as evidence of the work that the Holy Spirit is undertaking in us. That he has indwelt us upon our conversion. Our confession for Jesus as of who he is as Lord and Savior. This is the evidence that he is at work in us. We are bearing fruit, demonstrating God's complete love. This is assurance. Verse 14, And we have seen and testified that the Father has sent his Son to be the Savior of the world. John is taking time again to reinforce his readers against one of the most prevalent lies at the time of his writing this, the Gnostic heresy. That was so prevalent. A lie that was threatening to undermine the very foundation of the church and doctrine that the apostles like John were trying so hard to lay rightly. And this lie, among other things, was that Jesus was not the Son of God. Think about that. Remove that truth. And think back to that wonderful demonstration of God's love that John talked about earlier. And it becomes tragically and hopelessly less wonderful. It was a crack in the foundation of the church that the apostles were laying, and John knew it. And as he is doing throughout the rest of this book, he's taking time here to be diligent in working against it. Verse 15, If anyone acknowledges that Jesus is the Son of God, God lives in them, and they in God. He's establishing and reinforcing early Christian doctrine. 
describing this fundamental facet of it. If you are continually acknowledging, or I like how the NASB version of the Bible puts it, confessing, as that carries with it the weight and its meaning of heart posture and belief versus just head knowledge. If you are confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, you're in a good place. You have not fallen in to the lives of the Gnostics. Verse 16, and so we know and rely on the love that God has for us. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. Given this acknowledgement of Jesus as God's son and how that factors into God's ultimate demonstration of love for us, we can know. We can know and we can rely. Which is something that sounds kind of nice right around now, isn't it? Things that we can know and rely on. John reiterates, emphasizes, God is love. If we live a life markedly demonstrating that love, which is God, then we are living in him. And God, in the Holy Spirit, is living in us. John is repeating. He's emphasizing. He's reassuring. This you can know. But why? Why is John so set that we know these things? Why is it so important to him? Verse 17, this is how love is made complete among us so that we will have confidence on the day of judgment. In this world, we are like Jesus. This is how love is made complete. This, all this stuff in this passage before this, as well as the perfect summary at the end of this verse, is what it is for, is how love is com made complete in us. So that, John says, we will have confidence on the day of judgment. What is it that gives us confidence? That in this world, we are like Jesus. How are we like Jesus? We love like he did. We love like he is. And that's what this is about. It's reassurance of our salvation and our hope in Christ that we might have confidence on the day of judgment, it says, when we stand before the Lord and it's determined whether our name is written in the Lamb's book of life, that we might live with God in eternity. If we are exemplifying God's love in our lives, we don't need to fear that day. John goes on, verse 18. There is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Because fear has to do with punishment. The one who fears is not made perfect in love. The late apologist and thinker, Christian thinker Ravi Zacharias held the question of destiny or the question of what's going to happen to me after I die as one of the four most important questions that any human being in the world can ask themselves. And when it comes to questions that have that weight, that gravity, that importance, oftentimes they stress us out. Even more than stress us out, they cause fear, particularly when we're facing the terrible difference that is an eternity with God in paradise, living with him forever, versus eternal torment and separation from God and any kind of good thing that comes as a result of his presence. That's downright terrifying. 
When I was a kid, I was so scared of it that I had nightmares of it, of the facing this judgment and being condemned. And it scared me so bad that I went into ministry, right? It was this response, it spooked me, to say the least. And it's something that can strike fear into any and all of us. However, big however there, we have this confidence, this reassurance, understanding God's immense love for us, demonstrated in His Son's sacrifice on the cross for us, accepting and confessing this. This love being perfected within us as the Spirit is at work within us and abides in us. And as this love is then demonstrated to those around us as an overflow and evidence of this new spiritual birth, this transformation, as it happens, the fear is driven out. How could we fear? We know how much God loves us. We see the overflow and the evidence of his love and spirit at work in our lives. Us as his children. He as our Father. Us abiding in him. Him abiding in us. Why would we fear punishment that we know that we no longer face? We can't. We may recognize it as fearsome, particularly in its implications for others, who have not understood and accepted this great gift of love, but we no longer fear it for ourselves. We know perfect love drives out fear. We have blessed assurance. And for those of us who continue to fear Judgment Day, simply have not been made perfect in love in this way to this extent yet. Not yet but we absolutely still can be. All of us can experience this assurance that comes with the understanding and experience and outpouring of God's love. I am compelled to sit for just a little bit longer on this verse, verse 18. And unfortunately, not just to soak in how wonderful it is. Chances are that a lot of you, many of you, most of you, are very familiar with this verse is it's often invoked in any kind of situation where someone is afraid of anything. In fact, this verse is often used and seen as an absolute dismissal of any place that fear has in the Christian life whatsoever. Christians should not fear anything, the logic goes. And any fear we do have is a result of either not loving God enough or not understanding his love for us enough. And I don't believe this is true, however. It's certainly at least not the intention of this passage. And to misuse it and apply it in such a general way when it so explicitly states that the type of fear it's dealing with is that of punishment on the day of judgment. So as an example, or for instance, if your child comes into your room at night, they wake you up and they say, Mom, Dad, I, I had a bad dream and I'm scared. I don't think that we would roll over and respond to them, well, someone obviously hasn't been made perfect in love yet. Go back to bed, you little sinner. Or anything along those lines. Which leads to my second discomfort with the way that this verse is often used. The way that I have seen it happen. It is often used less as a loving encouragement for the fearful than it is a prideful rebuke of those who are cautious in a way that we disagree with. 
it is used less as a loving encouragement of the fearful than it is a prideful rebuke of those who we disagree with the ways they are cautious in. Further, it seems that there are indeed things that Christians are wise to fear, beneficial even. Proverbs 1.7, fear of the Lord is the beginning of all knowledge. Romans 11.20, Paul writes, for if God did not spare the natural, uh, Romans 20, Romans 11.20, excuse me, he says, granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief, and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but be afraid. So we see places throughout the Bible where Christian fear is often or even seen as beneficial. But I'll pause here, and I'll acknowledge both the depth of this rabbit hole that I've kind of led us down and the controversial nature of it. And I'll reference someone much older and wiser than myself to help bring us back out and hopefully to help us see the importance and the relevance here. Concerning the place of fear in the Christian life, John Piper says this, God commands us to fear the failure to be fearless by trusting Jesus. I'm going to say that again because it's a mouthful and a brainful. God commands us to fear the failure to be fearless by trusting Jesus. Fear basing your fearlessness on pride. All of our fearlessness is to be based exclusively on our faith in Jesus. And we are to fear every other kind of fearlessness. So I'm hinting at it. There's this irony. So if and when we use this verse as a bludgeon against other believers in and out of our own pride with the accusation that their fear is a result of them not being made perfect in love, we make ourselves hypocrites. As 1 Corinthians 13.4 explicitly states that arrogance or pride is not what love is. And there lies the stinging irony of unlovingly wielding a verse taken from a passage about loving one another as we used it against each other. But that's just how pride works, isn't it? And we must be careful not to fall into that trap. Verse 19. We love because he first loved us. John now circles back, reminding us, lest that sinister problem of our own pride begin to tell us anything otherwise. We love because... He first loved us. Him first, nothing else. Verse 20. Whoever claims to love God yet hates a brother or sister is a liar. For whoever does not love their brother and sister, whom they have seen, cannot love God, whom they have not seen. Again, the nonlinear John, circling back to early in verse 12, when he mentioned about how while no one has yet seen, while no one has seen God, we can see the love that is manifest in one another. There's a flip side to this coin. If someone either actively hates, which is a sin of action, or fails to love, which is a sin of omission, failing to do something that we're supposed to do, fails to love their brother or sister in Christ, then they don't or they can't love God. Because how could we love something that we can't see, we can't touch, we can't feel, when we can't even love something that we can see? John says it doesn't add up. The love isn't there. Verse 21. 
And he has given us this command. Anyone who loves God must also love their brother and sister. He's concluding this with a command. Not an option. Not a suggestion. Not a helpful hint. This is a command, he says, comes from God. If you love God, you must love your brothers and sisters in Christ. Thankfully, I think that this is one of the most natural commands in the Bible. It's like getting a command, if you jump in water, you must get wet. Or, if you sit down at a sled at the top of a hill and push off, you must slide down that hill. Everything that John has been saying so far, it naturally follows that if we love God, we will love our brother and sister in Christ. But, admittedly, sometimes we need that reminder. We need this reminder when division arises. We need this reminder when things in life begin to feel less than sure, less than certain. We need this reminder when things get complicated, and it's much easier to dismiss our brothers or sisters in Christ as fearful or ignorant than it is to actually sacrificially love them. We need this reminder when we start to fail to trust in God and his sovereignty, 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 and we feel our fleshly desire turn inward and the desire to preserve self resurfaces. Simply put, we do need this reminder when loving others starts getting difficult. So, as loving others being difficult has happened, as loving others being difficult has continued to happen, and as loving others will inevitably be difficult in the future, we are to remember, you are to remember, I am to remember, God loved you first. Love with his love. And then, take assurance in that. And know.